morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. How many uh, San Francisco fans do we have in the house? Well, we're going to get into a fight here this morning. Any Cardinal fans? Yes. How many came to this service so that uh, Pastor Ray wouldn't go too long in the second service so you could catch that game? It starts at one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I see you. So we're going to go ahead and cancel the second service. And in fact, during the, yeah, during the second service, we'll put the game up. No, we're not going to do that. Hey, good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. This is our CrossFit teaching series, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. The title of this weekend's message is Armed and Dangerous. There was a guy uh, by the name of Wayne Honeycutt. He was a chaplain for a Vietnam vet, a biker club, gang uh, that attended Desert Breeze a number of years ago, the Lord told him uh, to give a gun to one of our members. Uh, her name was Sandy Blackburn. <clears throat> and you guys know Sandy and Bill Blackburn. And uh, so uh, Wayne Honeycutt just felt like the Lord told him to give this gun to Sandy. And he told Sandy, make sure you have Bill, your husband, take you out, teach you how to shoot this gun and know how to handle it. He didn't know why. And I don't know how much longer after he had given them this gun or heard this gun and she, I guess she went out and shot it and learned how to handle the gun. She was at home by herself. Bill was gone. She was upstairs and she had three intruders come into her house. Three guys uh, wanting to rob them. She was upstairs. She thought, I'll just stay upstairs and maybe they'll get what they want and then they'll leave. But they didn't. And so imagine how she was feeling while she's upstairs. Unfortunately, she had the gun with her. It wasn't downstairs in a drawer somewhere. It was with her upstairs. She heard one of the guys coming up the stairs. And so she thought, I'm not going to wait for him to come into the room. I'm going to go and confront him as he's coming up the stairs. And so she came out with her gun as he's coming up the stairs. And she gritted her teeth and said, go ahead and make my day. Okay. She didn't actually say that, okay, because if you know Sandy, she's pretty petite. She just stood there and squared off with him, and the guy freaked out, and then they fled the scene. And uh, Sandy was armed and dangerous. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Take a look at your sermon notes. To be an armed and dangerous Christian, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an armed and dangerous Christian? It means to be so equipped, fortified, prepared with the gospel to not only be able to face the challenges of life and not fail in times of crisis, but to do some major damage to the kingdom of darkness by kicking down the gates of hell, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others. Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? It's one of the few times where Peter actually says something pretty profound. Uh, poor guy. I can relate, but uh, he says to him, and, 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 and of course, People had all kinds of different ideas of who Jesus is or was, but Peter said, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and of course Jesus said, you didn't come up with that on your own. Uh, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you, and in fact, 
upon this rock. Now, Roman Catholicism has confused the rock. They thought the rock was Peter, but the rock was actually Peter's profession of faith in Christ. So upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon the rock of the fact that I'm the Christ and those that put their faith in me, I will build my church. And then he says something about the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not what? will not prevail, in other words, you, that, so it really talks about the spiritual warfare kind of thing, and in other words, you're going to be armed and dangerous, you're going to be kicking down the gates of hell, and then he even goes on later on in that, and he talks about, um, about I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, so he's talking about authority and power and being armed and dangerous and all that we have in Christ Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about today, and, and as we talk about this, we're not just talking about surviving uh, through uh, the challenges and the crisis of life. But we're talking about thriving by advancing the kingdom of God in and through, uh, in our lives, but also in the lives of others. And that's what God wants us to do. You'll see on your notes as we work through this, verses 1 and 2, chapter 4 of First Peter, we see the exhortation to be armed and dangerous. And then in verses 3 through 6, we have the motivation to be armed and dangerous. So verses 1 and 2, what it means, verses 3 through 6, how to become. And keep in mind the context here is actually suffering. These folks are suffering, and he's showing us how the gospel gives us the resource to be able to, as I said, not just uh, survive but thrive in the midst of suffering and kick down the gates of hell and really advance the kingdom through our lives. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? We'll pray, and then we'll, we'll work through our notes and unpack these notes and fill in the blanks. So, Father, we are delighted to be here today. We are excited. We, we love you. Um, your word never promised us a painless or problem-free life, but it does promise us your presence, your power, and your peace to face anything. God, these the, the songs that we sang this morning, and particularly the one about your presence, oh, my goodness, I love your presence. We love your presence Nothing will uh, complete us more than to know and to walk, to experience your presence. God, we can trust you in our suffering, not because we can see your hand in our circumstances, but because we can see your heart on the cross. You so loved us and hate suffering that you were willing to come down and get involved in it. And so on the cross, your son, our Savior Jesus, suffered not only, not only with us to identify with us, but for us to bring us to you so that we can know your presence in our lives. Teach us through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit on how not just to survive, but to thrive in life's challenges and crisis by being armed and dangerous with the gospel for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let's begin reading. Um, chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore, he's talking about, we talked about it last week, rescued, and he's talking about since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So he's talking about the personal work of Jesus Christ. And last week, we talked about the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and how all of that has set us free from the, from the penalty of sin. It is in the process as Christ is working in our life, he's setting us free from the power of sin working in our lives. And one of these days, he will set us free from the very uh, presence of sin, justification, sanctification, glorification. And so therefore, we have unlimited access to the presence, 
power and peace of God. So that's what he's talking about. That's the therefore. He's saying, hey, here's the resources that we have through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says, arm yourselves. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You guys know this, that it's not what happens to you, but what happens in you that matters most. So, so as you kind of navigate through the difficulties of life, uh, it's not the events of life that make you think and feel and behave a certain way, it's your evaluation. So he's talking about an attitude. He's talking about a way of evaluating as it relates to having the gospel arming you, understanding the resources that we have in the gospel. So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And in that, he's just saying, hey, be willing to suffer versus sin. We'll talk about that. So he's talking about what it means to be armed and dangerous. Verse 2 he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in that verse, he's also defining for us what it means to be armed and dangerous by living for God's will, not your own will. And now he moves on and shows us the how to be armed and dangerous, verses 3 through 6. For the time that is past suffices for what for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. <clears throat> Sounds like spring break in Cancun, that verse right there, or, or whatever. I mean, but it sounds like our, our culture. You know, hey, I can't wait for the weekend. This is what our weekends and, and maybe, you know, college or on these universities. Uh, I worked around guys in construction, and uh, even on the fire department that had a, a bit of this in their lives. We all, to a certain degree, have a bit of this in, in our lives. And so he's telling us we need to cut ties with the past, that past way of life. And then he deals with our present in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So you got to cut ties with the past, stand strong in the present because people are going to look at you as a believer in Jesus Christ and they're going to go, you're flat out weird. And they're going to malign you because you have a whole different set of values. And then verses 5 and 6, he, he's telling us here, be ready to give an account in the future. So he deals with past, present, and future here. Verse 5 and 6, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and, and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though uh, judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So first exhortation to be armed and dangerous. What that means, here's your fill in the blank. Be willing to suffer rather than to sin. Be willing to suffer rather than to sin. If you're going to be armed and dangerous, you've got to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. Verse 1, the gospel gives us the resources to face suffering rather than to sin. Our natural inclination is when we say face suffering is we want to sin. We take the path of least resistance. And the Bible says, no, that's, that's sin. And... Uh, and it's more than knowing about these resources, it's being armed with them. Uh, Sandy, if she would have had the gun down below, tucked away in a, a drawer, it wouldn't have done her any good. But because she had the, the gun, the weapon upstairs with her, then she could confront the uh, guys that had intruded. 
into the home. And, and, and the same is true with us. We can come and agree about uh, the gospel, but you've got to take the gospel with you. You've got you've to be armed with it. So this word armed is much different than just being able to, uh, to maybe recite a few verses. I mean, it, it's a part of your life, and it, it means more to you than anything that you have ever experienced in life. So what does it mean to be willing to suffer rather than to sin? I think a great example of this is found in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. You don't need to turn there. Let me read it to you. It's about Moses. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I mean, so that's, that's pretty significant what he was giving up. All the wealth of Egypt, the power, the prestige, the position. He said, nope, I prefer to have Christ. I, I prefer to have God. And uh, they, of course, they were in the Old Testament were looking ahead to the Messiah, to Christ. Verse 26, he says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, Christ is more desirable with suffering. So if, if you're following Christ and you experience suffering, he's, he's more, he will bring more satisfaction, he's more desirable with suffering than all the treasures in this world without suffering. That's the idea. Be willing to suffer rather than to sin. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of what I mean by that. What does it mean to be armed with the gospel? You may know God loves you and accepts you, but when you face rejection or criticism and, you know, have a meltdown or blow up, then you're not armed with his love and acceptance. Because, I mean, let's face it, who gives a rip about the peanut gallery that just criticized you when you have the king of glory who gave his life for you and died for you, he accepts you, he approves of you. But see, too often we're more concerned about what people think or say, and so that's why we're oftentimes defensive when we're criticized, because we're not, we're not armed with his acceptance and approval of us. I have nothing to prove and nothing to lose if I have his approval and acceptance. So therefore, I'm not going to be defensive. That's, that's one example. Here's another example. You may know God is loving, wise, and in control or sovereign of your life, but when you face crisis and experience, as a result of that crisis, you experience inordinate anxiety and worry, then you're not armed with his loving, wise control. You can say, yes, he's loving, wise, and in control, but if you have this inordinate or excessive anxiety and worry in the midst of it, you're not armed with his loving, wise sovereignty. So it's just, it gives you opportunity when you see your emotions pegging out. You say, hey, wait a minute. They're, they're, I know it, but I really don't know it. I'm not armed with it. It's not deep in my heart. Here's another example. You may know you are secure and significant in Christ, but if you don't get that job, that promotion, that raise, or even you lose your job, and you're not just sorrowful, but you're devastated, then you're not armed with the security and significance of being in Christ. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? So it's more than just being able to recite a few Bible verses. It's like this, this gospel has a hold of your heart. And Christ is more real to, to you than the crisis and the difficulties in your life. Here's the next thing. So, so that exhortation to be armed and dangerous, be willing to suffer rather than to sin. And then live for God's will rather than yours. 
it's, it's interesting. We live in a society today, and I also hear a lot of kind of preaching that actually promotes more of God's here to, to fulfill your will as opposed to, no, 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 I'm here to fulfill his will. I'm, I'm here to live for his will. There's a guy by the name of Christian Smith. Um, he coined a phrase that came out a few years ago which really represents the Christian cultural trends of our day, which are extremely unhealthy. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. You've heard me talk about it in the past. Moralism. Let me ask you this question. You guys can answer out loud. Is God more concerned with our doing or our being? Yell it out to me. Yeah, our being. Because you can be just like a Pharisee by doing all the right things. And as Jesus said, that you worship me with your lips. You look real good with the doing, but your heart is far from me. So moralism tends to focus on doing, do more, do more, try more, try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, where the Bible deals with, our, with who we are. It's not a morally restrained will, it's a supernaturally transformed heart. Major difference. There's a lot of moralism being taught in American churches these days. And then the therapy, the therapeutic side, let me ask you this question, you can yell out to me, is God more concerned, this is kind of a no-brainer, but but I still don't think we really live this out. Is God more concerned with your character or your comfort? You guys are a little weaker on that one. Oh, character. Ay, ay, ay. How about this one? Is he more concerned with your happiness or your holiness? Yeah, you guys are a little more energetic on that one. I mean, yeah. But if we had a choice between the two in, American, in, in America and in American theology and Christianity, we choose uh, happiness and comfort over holiness and character. So it's that therapeutic. And then the deism is that God is a means to an end rather than the end. You know how I know if God is a means to an end to you? All I've got to do is watch your life and watch how you are easily deceived by the pleasures of life, thinking that the pleasures of life are greater and better than the pleasures found in Christ. So I see people deceived by that. And I also know this primarily by how people are disillusioned by the pressures of life and they defect from the faith. Two reasons why people defect from the faith. And it's often because they are deceived by the pleasures of life, thinking that they're better than the pleasures found in Christ, which is absolutely wrong. And then they defect from the faith because they're disillusioned by the pressures of life. Because, hey, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, and this is what I get? Forget that. Or I hear people say, oh, I tried that. Tried what? You tried that? No, you missed him. See, that's, that's called deism. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Deism, he's a means to an end to our Christianity. He is the end. His love is better than life. We don't follow him because he makes life better. We follow him because he is better than life. He is better than life, 63.3. It doesn't matter what goes down in your life. You're, you're going to follow him. He's at the center of your life. You have never been more satisfied. You've never felt more significant. You've never had and experienced more security than what is found in him. So that's, that's that idea of being armed and dangerous. Let me give you a couple more ideas here. So live for God's will rather than yours. It is diligently obeying all that God commands whether you agree or not. 
Why would you do that? Romans 14, 7 through 8 says, basically, my life is not my own. I belong to God. A troubling verse that hit me a number of years ago, Luke 6, 46, where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? So we, we oftentimes come to him and say, oh yeah, he's my Lord, and yet we live life however we want to live, rather than to follow his ways. By the way, you, you don't break God's laws, you break yourself against his laws, because that's ultimate reality, are his laws. It really represents his character. So live for God's will rather than yours. It is diligently obeying all that God commands, whether you agree or not. It is patiently, this is the hard one. You've heard me say this before. It is patiently accepting all that God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. How many by show of hands would say that you have encountered things in your past, some really difficult things that you still don't have all the puzzle pieces and you still struggle with? Okay, yep, a lot of us. So therefore, you've got to learn how to walk by faith and not by what? By sight. And you've got to learn to, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your what? You got it, your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him. That word acknowledge literally means cultivate intimacy with him. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He's in control. He's loving, wise, and in control of our life. I don't understand this. And God, I know that your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts higher than my thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 makes that very clear. That's right. That's right. It's about him and not about me. That's right. So, it is patiently accepting all that God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. But here's another thing. It is joyfully expecting great things from God as you are attempting great things for God. You're not just sitting and waiting for heaven. You're going to aggressively, you know, extend the gospel through your life and through the lives of others. Uh, Matthew 17, 20, it says, how much faith do you need to move mountains? Anybody know? Mustard seed, how big is mustard seed faith? So it's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters. So this is what it's saying. If you have just a little bit of faith in a big God, look out. There's some major things that can happen in your life and through your life. And so there's that sense of expectation because you know God's going to do some wonderful things even in the midst of difficulties. So that's that being armed, armed and dangerous and um, I had someone last night tell me that a couple weeks ago when we did that uh, teaching on witness stand, we talked about witnessing, and I, I said to be aware and commit to prayer about where God has placed you specifically. And this person said they begin to do that, and God began to open up doors for them to be able to talk about him to their neighbors, to their coworkers, in a way unlike ever before. So that's that mustard seed faith. So there you go. Exhortation to be armed and dangerous, be willing to suffer rather than sin, live for God's will rather than yours. Now let's talk about the motivation to be armed and dangerous. This is verses 3 through 6. How to become. Anyone who's ever played team sports has had those occasions when your own teammates, <laughs> your own teammates accuse you of being the best player for the other team. The way you're playing for your team is benefiting the opposing team more. Okay, let's fess up. How many have ever been accused of that? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, okay. Not very many of us, but there's enough. And uh, certainly... 
Peter could be accused of that because this is the guy that's writing this, and that's why he's showing us how to be armed and dangerous here, how to be armed with the gospel. So Peter could be accused, uh, accused of that. In fact, all the disciples could be accused of that. What were they doing when they should have been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? They were sleeping. And so we can be accused of that certainly in our own lives, but it's interesting. Peter denies Christ how many times? And what's fascinating about that, three times, and he even, at the, towards the end, he begins to curse. He uses some pretty profane language, and it's to a servant girl. Dude, come on. What a wimp. And we've all wimped out. Luke 24, 34 tells us, though, unlike Judas, that Peter has a full recovery because he repents. And so even when we're not armed and dangerous and we don't live kind of up to that to our potential, we can always repent at any moment. We can always come back. Turn to the folks next to you, the sitting around you, and see if they can define what it means to be when you have a weapon and you're ready and you are locked and loaded. What does that mean to be locked and loaded? Real quick, ask the folks sitting around you. So if you are locked and loaded with the gospel, you will be able to face the challenges of life. This term originated in the military and meant that your M16 had the magazine in place and was ready to fire. So if you are locked and loaded, it means you are ready for whatever comes next. So here's three things to, to prepare us on how to become locked and loaded or armed and dangerous. We gotta cut ties with the past, that's the first thing, cut ties with the past. You'll notice verse three, he's describing their past life. So you don't live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. So we, in other words, he's saying, hey, stop wasting the most important commodity God has given you, your life, thinking somehow you're gonna find satisfaction in the pursuit of all those things. And how do you do that? How do you cut ties with the past? By being convinced that sin, all of these things that he's describing, is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns. Write this verse down. It's, uh, it's not in your notes, but Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13. G-E-R 2.13. Chapter 2, verse 13. That's what it says, that they were guilty of being evil because they... And it's describing what sin is. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water for broken cisterns. So what he's saying here, don't live like this. This is a broken cistern. This isn't going to give you life, the living water that only Christ can give to you. So how do we cut ties with the past? By, I think, according to Philippians 3, 12 through 16, by forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead and no longer letting past sins that we have committed or have been committed against us to haunt, hassle, or harass us because as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And we also know the sins that have been committed against us, they can be healed up. Now, before I move on, let me, I, I need to talk to you about this a little bit, because some of you are totally sidelined because of your past. You're not armed and dangerous because you've done some things in the past that you can't shake off. You still live with the guilt and shame of the past. Some of you have been sinned against and you can't shake off. Notice what he says. He says, forgetting what is behind. That does not mean that you can't recall it anymore. It means that you stop reliving it. 
So when you look back in the past, you don't look back uh, to blame. You look back for understanding. And there should be a time in your life. By the way, let me just say that there is no sin that you have committed or sin that has been committed against you uh, that, is, that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. He redeems us. He restores us. So no matter what you've done in the past or what has been done to you, He can bring healing to you. He can heal you. You don't have to live back there anymore. In fact, you can recall it without reliving it and, and, and give testimony of the fact that you are a trophy of His amazing grace. Some of us, you've got a past that you don't even want to talk about because it just stirs up within you. When you've been set free, you can talk about it and you can share it with others to give them hope because of how far you've come as he's brought healing to you. There's an interesting, in the seventh chapter of Luke, there's a woman who comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and Jesus is sitting in the house of a, of a Pharisee and Jesus says something pretty profound. He says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. And what he's saying is that the more you realize how much you have been forgiven and how much he has healed you from past hurts, oh my goodness, your love for him will soar. You have an appreciation of his grace unlike ever before. So that's kind of how you know you're kind of making some progress. And you've got to listen. You've got to cut ties with the past. Quit living there. Move on. Have you ever wondered why your rear view mirror is so small? Can you imagine? And some of us are trying to drive down the road, the Christian road, so to speak, and we got a rearview mirror that takes up the whole front windshield because we're spending all our time looking back. It's, it's small. You just glance once in a while. Just boop. And you look back, not to, to relive, but to recall, uh, to be reminded, oh, God, you have brought me such a long ways. Does that make sense? That's, that's so important. I mean, when you think of those things in the past, you shouldn't just like, oh, freak out and upset and angry and mention someone's name or whatever. And I, I know it takes a while. It takes a while for that kind of healing to take place. But get on the road. Shrink the rearview mirror. Start looking out the front windshield where God wants to take you, where he's leading you. He has some wonderful plans for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Move on. Move on. You've got to move on. And that's the first thing. I think if you're going to be uh, armed and dangerous, if you're going to be locked and loaded. Here's the next one. Stand strong in the present. And you see that in verse 4. Because you're going to be criticized. People are going to think you're a weirdo, okay? And you are kind of a little bit because I've hung out with you and you, you just... That's just, uh, and I am too, okay. We all have our little idiosyncrasies and weird phobias and things like that, and God's setting us free from that. But, but stand strong in the present. Proverbs 29, 25, it says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever fears the Lord will be safe. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I, when I read that, I always think of bad company. The band, Okay. If you're old like me, you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you got like, what's that? A band? Bad company? That dude is old. Okay, bad company. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
Ephesians 5, 15 through 18, we're talking about how to stand strong in the present. It says, be very careful then in how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. Then it goes on and it talks about, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. When we start facing crisis and difficulty and problems, what do we do? We get drunk with wine. And that happens in a lot of different ways. We medicate. We watch, you know, one episode after another of our favorite TV program. We're just kind of escaping. Or, you know, we run to the refrigerator or we run here or we run there rather than to deal with it. And so it's interesting. Uh, when you look at being drunk and being filled with the Spirit, they are alike and unalike. They are alike in that both make you courageous and happy. When you're drunk, you're courageous and happy and very stupid. But, uh, but when you're spirit-filled, you're courageous and happy. That's how they are alike. But how are they unalike? Being drunk makes you courageous and happy because it decreases reality. Every one of us, we have some form of wine that we, we go to might not be wine, it might, and it could be, it could be alcohol, but it could be any number of things that we, we pursue to kind of escape reality. To where the spirit-filled life makes us courageous and happy because it does what? It doesn't decrease reality, it increases reality. We have a greater sense of the presence of God. We begin to realize He is for me and not against me. It changes everything about me. This last summer I had the privilege of uh, teaching in our VBS, our, our VBS program. It was just really a very uh, successful program. Kevin and his team did a phenomenal job. And so I didn't realize what I was signing up for, but I was in this uh, classroom where they run a whole pack of kids through this, uh, air, five different packs of kids into my classroom, and I would teach them for 30 minutes, and they would run out, and another group would come in. And so by the end of the day, after about two and a half hours of doing that, I was beat. But I'll never forget, I was talking to the kids, and I, I said to those kids, I said, hey, uh, do any of you ever feel like you just get so mad you just want to punch someone in the head? And all the kids go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so what do you do when you want to punch someone in the head? And one of the, one of the little girls in there says, I know, I know. And um, this, this little girl is the sweetest girl in the world. And I won't tell you her name because I don't want to embarrass her mom and dad. But Micaiah Moody, uh, <laughs> this uh, little eight-year-old girl, she calls me preacher. And every time she says it, preacher, preacher. So this morning she goes, preacher, preacher, and I'll go over there and high-five her. And so she says, I know, I know what you do. And so I said, okay, come on up here and show us what to do. And she goes, this is what I do. When I feel like I want to punch someone in the head, I slow down, I take a deep breath, and I say, dear Jesus, help me not to punch this person in the head. I go, that's awesome. I need to do that more often. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. It's just, that's the spirit-filled life. Right now, I'd like to hurt this person. Dear Jesus, help me right now. I mean, that's the spirit-filled life. Lord, I need for you to be more real to me than me wanting to punch this person in the head. And uh, that's, that's part of it. Here's what I often do is, is I'm kind of working through and navigating through things is that is my response to this person, crisis, or circumstance consistent with someone who knows that God is for me and not against me? So as I'm responding to the issues of life, rather than to drink, wine, or whatever, you tend to 
you start dealing with that anxiety, anger, depression, or whatever it might be, and you, uh, and you say, hey, Lord, help me to respond in a manner that would be consistent with someone who, uh, who knows that you are for me and not against me. Or what are the truths about the person and work of Christ, gospel resources, that I need to apply specific to where my heart is most anxious, angry, and depressed? Now, if you're like me, I mean, I don't realize that my heart is anxious, angry, and depressed until someone has to point it out to me. You know, and usually my wife is the one that has to point it out to me. And, she'll, and it's usually when I'm driving. She can tell when I, by how I drive if I'm anxious. And there have been times where she'd say, are you, are you okay? It's like, yeah. What? Just my response is just, I mean, it's like, it's like, well, uh, I, I notice how you're driving. It's a little, a little bit reckless. I said, well, hey, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Then why did you run those three cars off the road back there? And why are you driving on the sidewalk right now? You know, so usually, and, and it's really interesting. I had the, some of that brought to my awareness in our elders meeting here a couple of weeks ago. I had some guys say, that's really, and they didn't actually say it, but it was kind of like what I was saying was not appropriate. And I was like, well, hey, well, I'm... I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be politically correct. And then the more I thought about it, I go, that's just not flat out very loving. It's not consistent with someone who isn't. So it was really convicting for me, but it, it required someone from the outside to point that out to me. Now, I'm open in my aggression. My wife's a little bit closed in her aggression, so it takes a little while before I can recognize it. And I've, I've gotten a little better at it with her, but she really kind of knows right off the, the bat. But I don't even know it sometimes. I mean, I, I struggle with it and have to have somebody pointed out to me. And so oftentimes I'll, uh, even in my prayer time, and this is what you want to do through your prayer time. So we're talking about being armed and dangerous. There's a couple questions you ask yourself. Why has God shown me this today, this particular verse or text of scripture? Why is God speaking to you this morning? How can you begin to apply it to the specific areas of your life this next week? What wrong thoughts or emotions will I have today if I forget this truth? This last week, it happened to me. I had a couple sleepless nights, and I woke up. I was really stressed. And the verse that the Lord gave to me that particular morning was Psalm 9014. It's a, it's a verse that I had memorized and meditated on. It. Boy, it was just really sweet. And so I had you know, that arsenal with me, so to speak, this, this scripture with me. It says, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love so that I may rejoice and be glad all of my days. I needed that. I needed that just so that I don't want to punch somebody in the head because I was kind of stressed out and didn't have much sleep. And so those are the kind of questions we, we ask ourselves. So we've got to cut ties with the past, stand strong in the present, and then be ready to give an account in the future. Be ready to give an account in the future. Verses 5 through 6. That's what he's talking about in verses 5 through 6. He's just talking about judgment that one of these days all of us will give an account. And really what he's saying is that nobody gets away with anything. You guys ever get troubled over the injustices that are all around us, even in American culture? Show of hands. Guess what? Everybody look up here. Nobody gets away with anything. That's what those two verses are saying. So if people have hurt you and offended you and done wrong to you, if you understand that, you will pity them and pray for them. Because if your daddy gets a hold of them, it's over. And eventually he will. And so when you really understand that, that's what helps you to be able to forgive people. You just, oh my goodness, what's in store for them? That's scary. And that's a little bit of the idea. 
Romans 14, 12, it says, each one of us will give an, give an account to God. Hebrews 4, 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom, I, I sound a little oaky there for a minute, didn't I? Sorry, my little, my Oklahoma background. I've, I've never even, yeah, I've been to Oklahoma once. But uh, my mom, you can blame her for some of the way that I talk. It's really messed up, isn't it? Okay, no, it isn't. Okay. She's right back there, by the way. She, she takes credit. She says, yes. Um, where in the world was I? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows everything about you. You can't escape his eyes. He's watching you. He knows you. He loves you. Matthew 25, 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. Basically, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gives five talents, to another two, to another one. And so the one with the fives goes out and invests his talents. Talents is your, your time, you know, talents, treasure, all that God has given you really. So he takes it and he invests it and he doubles it. The one that has the two takes it out and invests it, doubles it. But there was the one with the one. What did the one with the one do it? Yeah, they, he buried it. And so when the master comes back, what does the master say to him? This is really frightening words. Do you guys know what he says? You wicked and lazy servant. And then later on, he says, cast the wicked servant into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Joan Rivers passed away here a few weeks ago. And I overheard the Hollywood crowd, a, a comedian, fellow comedian, say, I would have liked to be there when she stands face to face with our maker in heaven and hear, you know, some of the jokes and her one-liners and her crassness. And I was thinking, I wouldn't. You don't even have any idea what you're saying. We will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the 10th chapter of Hebrews. If she didn't confess Christ on her deathbed, all that she had in store for her was weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's frightening. I mean, that's what the Bible says. And... Uh, Life is a test to trust a temporary assignment. Your beliefs determine your eternal destination. Your behavior determines your eternal compensation. Two-question final exam. When you stand before him, here's the two questions that need to have been answered. What did you do with Jesus, and what did you do with what I gave you? And as your pastor, I love you. I love you. I want, I want you more than anything that when you stand before Christ that first of all in this life that you would become fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ you'd live out what we call the five G's here you'd walk with him live his word contribute to his work and make an impact in this world all for his glory so that 
when you stand before him, when you go face to face with your creator, you would hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I love what Max Locato says. You'll be home soon too. You may not have noticed it, but you are closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken, each breath is a page turned, each day is a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp, enter the city. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than to live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for meeting with us this morning through worship and your word and this exhortation to be armed and dangerous. God, we want to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. We, we can do that because we know you're more desirable, you're more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. And we want to live for your will rather than our will. It's not about us, it's about you and your glory, and that's where we'll find our deepest satisfaction. Thank you for the motivation of cutting ties with the past, Lord. I, I pray for those that, that struggle with the issues of the past. All of us do to a certain degree, so Lord, help us to do that. Help us to, to forget what is behind and, and strain for what is ahead, for what you have for us. Help us to stand strong in the present. Help us to be spirit-filled and ask those hard questions so that we can narrow the gap between our spirituality and our reality. And God, may we be ready to give an account in the future when we come face-to-face with you so that we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. I love you very much. And uh, hey, uh, this morning, if you're new, I'd love the opportunity to, uh, to meet you, give you a coin for a free drink from our cafe. There'll be some of our pastors up here up front, and if you have any prayer needs, we would love to be able to pray with you this morning. God bless you. Have a great day.